Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this week is Louise Host, Managing Director of Spa UK. Louise is such an interesting person to talk to. She's had a very varied career, including international roles with Walmart in Canada and Chile. And she says about herself that she really enjoys complexity. That's one of the reasons she was attracted to the convenience sector and to spa in particular. So we talk about lessons from COVID and how the pandemic changed her as a leader, opportunities for convenience retail around home delivery, the challenges of HFSS and the cost of living crisis, why she's so impressed with the convenience sector in the Netherlands, and much more. Enjoy the show. Louise, welcome to The Pick List. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. We are recording this on Wednesday, the 8th of June, 2022. What's on your plate this week? What's keeping you busy? I've been busy in terms of, I suppose, looking forward um, in terms of our board meetings. Um, I have been working through next week, the Blakemore's um, business is having a conference, SRS, so prepping for the presentations for that. Um, and at the same time, actually, um, working with our new chairman. So SPA has got its first independent chairman. Um, so been working through with him in terms of um, activities that we'll start to do um, now that we've got him on board. Now, we've just had the long platinum jubilee weekend, of course. Did you get a chance to take some proper time off? Did you get up to anything nice? Um, I did. So we had 25 of our neighbours round on Saturday. Oh, lovely. Um, so we used to have a neighbourhood watch that ran along the street um, and uh, we'd meet up with each other sort of probably every six months, uh, which we haven't done for three years. Um, so we had um, 25 of them. Um, it was very good. Um, some of them stayed late, which was really good. Um, and some of them came with their new grandchildren that I'd not met through COVID. So, uh, yeah, so it was really lovely, actually, really nice just to catch back up with people um, and then spent some day clearing up. <laughs> I can imagine that sounds like quite a big job. Obviously, more important for the purposes of the podcast, though, how did trading go? What have you um, been hearing from, from retailers? Yeah, really good. Um, I think, yes, the weather was slightly mixed, um, but I think particularly um, the Saturday, Sunday, the weather, and particularly north, actually, the weather was really good. So, and from a convenience point of view, those different spikes in weather, whether it's good or bad weather, almost really benefit convenience sector. Um, so trade has been positive. Um, and I actually think it helped the customer sentiment. Um, I think it's been it's been hard sort of five months probably since Christmas um, from a sentiment point of view. And I actually think it really gave people something to look forward to and say, actually, no, I am going to 
go and, and do a piece of activity, whether that's a street party or um, just getting together with families. So, yeah, trade was very good. And were there any particular products or lines that did especially well from what you've been hearing? Um, alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> that's no surprise. <laughs> Which is no surprise. And, and just those real traditional traditional products almost of picnic picnic type products really um I think particularly with the with the weather being reasonable actually I think a lot of people just were, were having traditional English picnics or British picnics um so um so no that sort of traditional core core picnic food fantastic I have so many questions for, uh, for you about what's happening in the industry at the moment but I did want to talk a little bit about you first and your okay. career before we dive into those you came to spa in September 2019 having previously worked in a variety of senior roles at Walmart breaks and co-op what was it about spa and the convenience sector that appealed to you when you were planning your next career move um so I think it's the uniqueness of spa um the the fact that it's in a convenience sector I, I really like and I'd spent a long part of my career in Walmart and traditional big box retailing so I wanted to do something different um and I think the business model of spa with the the mix of the independence and their entrepreneurship the can the sort of company-owned stores and then the wholesalers for for me, that whole I like complexity and I like ambiguity, um, and that mix actually meant I think it still challenges me to think from a retail point of view, um, but almost actually then running a part of the business to say okay, well how do we adapt what we're doing to actually suit the different needs of the business, um, and I just think Spa is such a unique model. I think the other part for me is the mix of you. We do have an international business. But the international business is very much a consultant, consultative um, support business. Um, and so you've got those both ends of the spectrum. You've got people that you can turn to and say, what's going on in the world and how can we best learn from somewhere else in the spa world? And at the same time, you can go to an independent retailer who is creating things himself. And those two mixes, actually, I just think is, is really, really unique, but actually makes the best of spa and in your uh, during your time at walmart in particular you did have quite a lot of experience working internationally i think from memory yeah. canada and chile among um, yeah. some of the markets you worked in so you clearly like having a little bit of an international angle um on on things when you look at sort of retail uh, globally which markets excite you from a convenience point of view where where's some great inspiration holland i, I we've just come back from um, a spa international conference in Holland and some of the spa retail well spa retailers but also Albert Hein and Jumbo I actually think their their merging of food service and tra traditional retailing um, I think is really interesting um, I, th I think it it's it's beyond where the UK is at the moment and really has taken that sort of blurring of the lines completely through. Um, so, I'd, I, yeah, I think they're, and they've done it in a modern way. So I think there's convenience in other markets, but not, not necessarily as modern as I've seen recently in Holland. Um, it's hard because actually I've not been out and about for three years. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but uh, yeah, so certainly I would say that's that I think has got some real pieces to learn from. Um, and Albert Hein has always got pieces, I think, to learn from in terms of just the way they merchandise. Um, but that, I think just that that, sec that sector or the convenience sector in Holland definitely has focused in on what's the mission and the format for the store and then really delivered it. That's super interesting. When I was preparing for our conversation today, I had a read of all sorts of articles that you've you've been quoted in and some interviews you've you've given recently. And there were two pieces that really stood out to me. Um, you gave a big interview to the Grocer roughly about a year ago, um, when we were just coming out of the the worst of of COVID, if you will, and you were sort of reflecting on on some of the lessons learned. And one thing that really struck me was that you talked about not having a playbook for something like the pandemic and needing to rewrite the rules as you went along. And then you also more recently um, spoke to management today about leadership and developing your confidence as a business leader. And so thinking about these two things together, I wonder when you now look back at that pandemic period, what are the big lessons that have stayed with you and how did that period change you as a leader? Um I think the one piece is that you don't have to know all the answers. I think in my more junior career, I felt that I needed to have the answers myself. Um, and I think the pandemic really taught me that actually other people will have answers as well. And actually, the more you share and bounce ideas, the more you'll probably get to a better answer. Um, so I think the pandemic's definitely caught, taught me that. I think the other piece is actually the ability to deliver change at pace. I think we've all come out of the pandemic realising that actually you, it's it's better to do something and do it, but make, and if you make a mistake, you make a mistake, but you can easily unpick the mistake and go again. Um, and even simple things like coming back to the office, we've, I think we're on version 10 of our sort of how we're coming back to the office because we've just kept listening and adapting and listening and adapting. We probably wouldn't have done that before. We would have wanted to get it perfect and then do something. Um, so I think there the has been a mindset change of people talk about agility, but almost that mindset of actually we know that things have not been perfect because we've all had to be in and out of lockdown four or five times. So I think people have become a lot more accepting of change in that sense. Um, so, yeah, but that, that my big learning almost is actually just you won't know all the answers so just talk to people. Convenience retail itself also saw some massive changes during uh, the pandemic as as of course did, did other parts of, of the food and grocery sector but you know real big changes in shopping patterns in many cases more footfall depending on yeah. location bigger basket sizes uh, completely different patterns throughout the week. Um, how much of that has stayed and where are we now in terms of, of demand? Are we back to pre-pandemic levels or have they stayed elevated? Uh, so they still stayed elevated. Um, they So our footfall is still ahead and our basket size is still ahead um, and our sales are still ahead. Um, it depends on the, the type of store. So for ourselves, where a store has got more of a everyday convenience dinner for tonight sort of almost 
a full weekly shop, but part of a weekly shop, those stores definitely have stayed ahead. Um, so that change in habit to shop locally, particularly in the stores where we've been able to adapt to the ranges to, to meet the need of shopping locally um, for a bigger basket has stayed. Um, so particularly our Henson's business that has a bigger footprint, actually their sales are, are even ahead on the first year of the pandemic um, significantly. So I think where, where you're able to offer the right range for what the customer's needs are, um, that's come through. Now that's more challenging in some smaller convenience stores because there just isn't the physical space, um, but where the retailers have been able to adapt and, and readjust their space and their ranging actually generally they've stayed well they've generally they've stayed ahead and overall we're still still ahead and adjusting the ranges has that meant primarily putting more focus on fresh and chilled to to serve some of those dinner for tonight missions or what changes have worked um so it it is that but it's also actually pack size um so rather than say singles of water, maybe four packs of water or, or bigger packs of beer. So actually we're selling generally bigger packs of beer than we were doing historically. Um, so there's, so for me, that then sort of shows that actually it is people who are buying more for the next two to three days rather than just for now. When suppliers um, are supplying into that sector and perhaps in a, in a bigger way than they might have done pre-pandemic, um, is there are there any preconceptions or challenges that you find yourself having to to work on? You know, is there anything that perhaps don't quite get about supplying into that sector or making certain categories work in smaller formats? Um, I don't think necessarily. I think I actually think the hard yards took place almost at the beginning of the pandemic when actually it was such a shock to the the supply base that actually that convenience was was operating differently. Um, I think that actually then has held held true almost that actually over then this last two and a half years, then that range has just gradually changed. And in some cases, just not changed. It's, we've not taken it back out. We've just kept with those ranges. Um, so no, so I think the suppliers have, have recognised it. And on-demand delivery also became something that, uh, you know, suddenly became very important to, to, to convenience retailers. Again, could you just talk a little bit about where that demand is now and what opportunity um, you see for, for rapid delivery uh, within convenience in the future? So I, um, it depends on the retailer in terms of the demand now. So in some areas it has declined for us or, or the demand has dropped down for us um, that said we still see it as a an opportunity um, so we definitely see it as an opportunity for the future um, and whether that's quick convenience or versions of or or the more traditional home shopping but a sort of a smaller basket home shopping we still do see that as an opportunity um, and we'll still continue to explore what does that look like? We just signed an agreement with um, Deliveroo. So we are now working with the five different wholesalers in terms of how would Deliveroo sort of be in within their stores. Um, so we, we definitely see Deliveroo as part of the sort of service mix that will come from a spa store. And the argument is always that, you know, the, the stores are already in the communities that need to be served by these rapid delivery um, operators. So there's 
you know, the, the location, um, there's probably an opportunity to leverage that location a little bit more than, than would have been the case in the past. Yeah, and I think, I suppose it's just customer shopping habits now um, that people, some people just don't want to travel to a store and want the store to come to them. Um, so it, for me, it's that making sure that we're still capturing the full market share that we could capture um, around our catchment area to the store rather than assuming that somebody will come to the store and, and having the service offers that that everybody is now wanting. Now, I've quizzed you a lot about the pandemic, um, but thankfully that upheaval, hopefully, knock on wood, is, is behind <laughs> us. But um, the upheaval hasn't stopped um, because we're now in the middle of a cost of living crisis, which we'll talk about in, in a second. But we're also facing some more regulatory upheaval, particularly in the form of the HFSS restrictions, some of which have now been delayed, but some of which are still coming uh, in into force in October. There's been a lot of concern about these new restrictions, particularly from the convenience sector. And the ACS, which you chair, has been very vocal for many, many months in saying the government hasn't been clear enough in its guidance to convenience retailers around how these rules are going to apply. Has that improved? Um, and how well prepared is convenience for HFSS now? Um, so I think it is pretty well prepared. Um, I don't think it's been helped by the U-turn on parts of the legislation. Um, certainly, I, I mean, I can only really speak, I suppose, from a, a SPA point of view in terms of the preparation that we've done, but we've tested location. Um, we've got an agreement um, with the three wholesalers that it impacts um, how we're going to change the stores. Um, that process is underway at the moment. Um, so. I feel like we're reasonably well prepared. It's it isn't helped by the lateness of the legislation, um, and there is ambiguity in it a little bit. Um, but no, I think we're well we're well prepared. I think the the challenge for the sector, particularly where there's a big chunk of independence, is the cost, because actually to relay a store to accommodate moving promotional activity into an aisle costs. Um, so I think the and at a time when um, their fuel bills are going up, et cetera, et cetera. I think it is just a challenge to the to the sector um, because the impact of moving it in a small store is significantly more than in a large store. Um, but it, it feels like we're well prepared. And there's also a perception, fairly or unfairly, that um, convenience retail can over-index on... HFSS products. Um, as consumers become more health conscious and there's a much greater desire to be supported in making healthier choices, what role do you see for convenience retail and how do you think ranges and offerings will be adapted to cater to that? I think naturally we look at what the customer is wanting um, and and I think we've shown through the pandemic that actually the sector can be agile and can adapt the ranges as to what customer needs are. Um, so as customers move towards healthier foods or healthier versions, and actually as manufacturers develop more healthier versions, which is what has happened, um, I think the sector will adapt. Um, and I think that the other piece is though that we also need to 
make sure that there's a balance because it does have to be customer choice. Um, and there's times when people do want a treat. Um, and how do we make sure that we can enable that choice to customers and, and let the customer make the decision? Now, I think this is probably a good moment to start talking about our articles. The first one I was keen to talk to you about is from the FT. And the headline is Cost of Living Crunch Hits UK Consumers Hard. So it builds on uh, some of the points you've already made about uh, some of the challenges in the sector. This is reporting on figures from the BRC and KPMG that show British consumers are cutting their spending quite dramatically now in response to soaring cost of living. Retail sales, according to that data, were down 1.1% in May, and this is across retail rather than uh, grocery specifically. And that figure probably hides a bigger drop in volume. Um, there's also some separate card data from Barclay Card quoted in here, uh, also showing that people are really cutting back on their spend now, including on eating and drinking out. What is the impact that you have seen um, within convenience so far? How is cost of living affecting people's choices? Yeah, so at the moment, we have not seen a dramatic drop down in sales, um, nor in footfall. So if, you, if we sort of track ourselves through from January, we're not really seeing a drop down at the moment. Um, that's not to say it won't come. Um, but I think the the element, I suppose, around convenience and the reason that people use convenience um, is, is that more either top up or it's it's a, a habit of breakfast on the move or popping in for lunch. Um, so I think at the moment we're seeing that that is continuing. Um, that's it, it could well change, but it isn't it or it hasn't at the moment. Um, I also think when I sort of read through the article and was thinking there is an element that actually through the pandemic people have spent quite a lot on on general merchandise goods over the course of the last year, year and a half. Um, so is it that they're sort of slowing down and just moving where they're spending rather than spending into that sector that actually they've already spent more than they probably would have spent? historically um so yeah so we haven't necessarily seen it sort of impact as yet and spa has invested a lot in its own label range in recent years as well when you look at something like the cost of living crisis um is your investment in own label likely to change as a result of that i.e does it become even more important and you want to invest even more or do you potentially want to step back from that no so i think i mean and with these are live debates in the business at the moment in terms of what are the the sectors the categories the brands whether it's brand or own brand that we need to think about um to support customers um so is that is there opportunities in frozen or um, or own label or tertiary brands, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole raft of debates going on that are live at the moment to just understand which are the categories we need to focus on um, and what do we need to do within those categories. So definitely, I think own brand plays a big part in that. And there's the I mean, there's been reported growth in the own brand sector um, as people trade down. Or trade across really because actually gen generally the products will be as equal 
Um, so I think it's definitely a highlight. Um, but I think there's also categories that we're then looking at to say, OK, what does that become um, to support people when the, they're sort of short of cash? And just judging by the fact that you're saying this is a live debate within the business at the moment, you don't have a view at this stage as to um, which categories you're, you're likely to want to focus on a little bit more. No, but I suppose there are the sort of typical ones where frozen generally is sort of seen as a, a category that actually is always always positive um, in a sort of a, a decline in um, cash in family households and generally has done well when there's been recession. So we've definitely talked about frozen. Frozen is a challenge from a convenience sector um, because of the size of the stores and the space that's within there. Um, but so we started sort of talking from that point of view. Um, and then at the same time, actually, what do you then do on promotions? Um, because promotions, yes, can give value for money, but at the same time, if people are um, short of cash, they might not have they might not have the money to be able to spend to buy into a, a bigger, a multi-buy promotion type activity. So all of that at the moment is, is live as debates. The next article is one you picked and it's from Fashion Network and the headline is ASOS launches Thrift Plus Resale Pilot takes deeper dive with second circular collection. This is news that ASOS is launching a collection of 47 pieces designed according to the circularity principles uh, devised by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and it's also piloting a partnership with Thrift Plus where customers can send unwanted clothes back to Thrift Plus to sell on that platform. And again, this is all about trying to create a more circular fashion industry. I have to say, this was not at all what I thought you were going to pick. <laughs> so you really surprised me. So I'm so intrigued. What was it about the article that caught your uh, attention? Um, I, I think two or three things. One, um, as I said earlier, we've just come back from a conference with Spar International and actually they had a speaker who talked about circular society and also talked about um, how the world's resources will come to an end if we don't do something different. Um, so I think I had that in the back of my mind. I also have a 18 year old daughter who <laughs> buys things, never wears them and then throws them away. Um, and, and and I used to be in Asda and fast fashion used to be top of the agenda. And how do we show the new products each week? And we'll have new products coming in every week. And I just it just made me stand back and think. Yes, this is really good, but almost what have we what have we done to ourselves? Um, and. And yes, there's there's elements of this that is well, and I suppose it's also this is really then tapping into that sector that has only ever known that way of living, of buying clothes online, wearing them two or three times, throwing them in the back of the wardrobe and then not using them again. Um, and it just made me think, actually, maybe it might help people realise what what actually they should be doing. Um, so I, it just really sparked that I've got it live in my house. I'd just come back from a conference and and actually we do need to do something different. And I think the more industry can look at what's their version of a circular society um it would it would help um and, and it's hard because it's it is it is big change behavior i mean drs is trying to change the sort of the, the recycling of bottles but actually it's really hard um so but something has to change so yeah it was that that sort of made me think 
actually, I, I like what they're trying to do. How do you approach sustainability generally within SPA? Where does it sit within the organisation and, and how much do you personally get involved in the strategy there? So we've, um, we've actually adopted the strategy from SPA International. Um, so they have a, um, a six pillar piece that they look at. Um, and then we have worked that across both the central office and the five wholesalers. Um, and have been really focused in on actually doing it from the wholesalers because the wholesalers are all independent businesses, what's right for their business, and then laddering that back into an overall um, sustainable approach. Um, the pieces that we've from a central office been very focused in on is plastic. Um, so particularly on the areas that we can control in terms of spa brand. Um, so we started, I don't know when, but a while back on black plastic and removing black plastic, um, now taking out virgin plastic. So plastic has been one of our sort of core starts. Um, this year, we've been then also working um, both with the Queen's Canopy, but also Spa International in terms of planting trees. Um, all of our energy is now recycle recyclable energy. So uh, we've been trying to break it down into bite-sized chunks, I suppose. Because when you start to look at it, it's such a huge challenge. And the only way I think you can do it is in, in bite-sized chunks. Um, and then each of the RDCs actually are at different stages and are testing different pieces. And then we're trying to share those between them. Um, so Blakemore's are testing some electrical vehicles. Um, we've got solar-powered stores. So we're, we're trialling different things in different retailers, and then we'll cross-share those. Um, so that we can then try and move ourselves forward. The final article you picked is from The Guardian, and the headline is World's First Raspberry Picking Robot Cracks the Toughest Nut, Soft Fruit. This is news that robots developed by a company called Fieldwork Robotics are now successfully harvesting berries, including raspberries, in Portugal on farms that supply uh, many big UK retailers. The context here is that automation has been on the rise in the feed industry for some time and has, of course, become an even more important fo focus since the pandemic and some of the seasonal labor shortages uh, that we did experience and continue to experience. Soft fruit has always been a real challenge uh, because it bruises so easily and it requires a, a delicate touch that previous iterations of picking robots have, have struggled with. These ones can do it, uh, so it's a big breakthrough. And as the article says, the robots um, are now also being trialed on tomatoes and cauliflowers. Another really intriguing pick. Um, what stood out to you from this article, Louise? So for me, this was actually going back to the pandemic. And I think the piece that the pandemic, well, pandemic and Brexit actually have taught us almost this, you do have to change. Um, and and we'll never know the answers almost, but, and I suppose it is supply and demand that as labour gets more expensive, as labour becomes short, actually it's driven this acceleration in lots of different spaces of automation, whether it's robotics in a, a picking field to, we, we're now, now using robots to do our, um, our invoicing and accounts payable type services. So, um, 
and it's a bit of a chicken and egg. You don't know whether it would have happened without the pandemic at the pace that it happened and without Brexit at the pace that it's happened or or not. Um, but it just made me think, actually, yes, there's been some, the pandemic has been horrendous, but actually there definitely has been mindset change and behavioural change out of it that I think has probably been something that we've ne probably needed. Um, and, and yeah, I think if you'd said three, four years ago, there's going to be a robot picking raspberries, I don't think people would have believed us. Um, if you'd said to me, pre-pandemic that we'll have a robot paying our accounts I've probably <laughs> said no um but I do um so for me it's that sort of and we'll never know whether whether it would have happened or it wouldn't have happened but actually it has definitely been a benefit of the pandemic that it's made people think and behave differently um and accelerated things that actually probably should have been top of mind before but it's the the need now that actually we we've, we've got to face into labor labor just isn't available as much as it was and it's a lot more expensive than it was one of the points uh, in the article that i thought was quite interesting was that they talk about um the relationship between robots and human workers um they were quite keen um to stress that the idea isn't necessarily to replace all the workers but it's to have robots that can work alongside human uh human workers and there's a sort of similar discussion isn't there sometimes happening within retail when people talk about self-checkouts and, and just growing use of automation and concern around you know what does that mean what does it mean for the customer and, and that human interaction what do you think is the right balance to strike there and I, do you ever get worried that potentially we're going to end up with these sort of super automated stores I suppose there's for me there's probably two angles to that a super automated store I would worry that you lose, from my customer point of view, losing the emotional and personal connection. And I think it um, will service some stores, rightly, and some types of customers. Um, I think there's a balance of having automation where actually the task is not necessarily adding value um, and having a balance that suits different customers. Um, and, and, and we've seen it, I suppose, a little bit during the pandemic as people have moved to cards, where it was historically people were using a lot more cash. People have moved on to using cards. People have moved on to using self-service checkouts. I mean, 10 years ago, people didn't want to use them. And now in most stores, there's at least one. And in most of the multiples, it's hard to find a, a um, conveyor belt checkout. So I, I think it is a balance. Um, I think it's also talking with the colleagues as to the why. Um, so, I mean, I, I joke that we you do our accounts payable now on through a robot, but actually the colleagues love it because actually they've taken away what was a manual, pretty mundane task that they can actually now go on and do other tasks. And they just, they they get sent the by the robot the things they don't understand or the robot doesn't understand. And then they're teaching the robot how to understand what to look for. Um, so, and actually the robot operates 24 hours a day. Um, so I think there's, we've, I suppose we've approached it in the sense of saying, how do we remove tasks that actually we can then use those people to do something that's more, more meaningful. 
And when we talk about the sort of extremes of automation there, I mean, there are obviously examples in convenience retail, if you're thinking about, you know, the Amazon Go stores of this world. Do you look at that and think, I can see the an exciting future for convenience, or do you do you look at it and think, oh, oh we want to make sure we we don't do that and we do a different version of it? Um, so I I do think it's exciting, and uh, for me, it's an example almost of three four years ago that was a a pipe dream in inverted commas. Actually, it was quite revolutionary. Um, I think it's good for the sector actually because I think it challenges us to say actually, what does the future look like for convenience and what is that blend? Um, Because for me, the sector that SPA particularly is in is very much neighbourhood retailing. Um, And I definitely think there's a a blend of you would still want that personality and that emotion and that emotional connection. But is there a a way that we can use that automation to bring down the, the cost to serve? Um, and the cost of running stores. So I, I think there's a there's a sweet spot that we'll need to work through um, as to what that looks like. Now, we're nearly out of time. Before I let you go, though, I wonder if you could share just what your plans are and what you're excited about for the second half of the year. I've quizzed you on all the difficult bits, all the <laughs> challenging, problematic issues. Um, what's getting you excited about the second half of the year? Um, so I think we've got lots of exciting tests that we're running in terms of proposition stores. Um, so making sure that we can um, make those launch successfully and trial and test. So that's exciting. And um, we've launched our new Joy of Living local brand positioning. Um, so we've um, started with value on your doorstep. We've just moved to um, nurturing neighbours. Um, so we've just done a big cashback activity. Um, so really being able to celebrate that with our shoppers who've won some of those awards. Um, and then moving on to being passionate about locals. So that will come through in the September, October time. So for me, and, and actually seeing that grow. So it's a new initiative this year. We're just starting to embed it. Um, we're starting to see that being tested as to what that will look like um, in a full store. Um, So I think that's really exciting. And then um, continuing to grow spa brands. So building on where we've started in terms of ranges, how do we continue to um, build out those ranges? So um, there's lots coming. Um, And and then finally, I think actually just being able to get back out um, and visiting the retail stores, really getting out into the the fields and um, more fully working with them. Fantastic. Louise, we're out of time. If people want to connect with you, want to find out more about what SPA is up to, what's the best way to do that? Um, Via email. Um, So louise.host with an E on the end um, at spa.co.uk. Fantastic. Louise, thank you so much for being my guest. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.